Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org friendshipwithgod.org or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. 1 Corinthians 1.18, one verse. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. These pre-communion devotions, really, we want to focus on the cross. And the last time, we looked at remembering the cross through communion. And the purpose of all of these studies on the cross is to make us feel like we're right there. When the Lord was crucified, we want to feel as though it's today. We want to feel as though it's right now. We want to feel like we are there And today, we focus on this verse, which sums up God's concept of the cross. This is a 1 Corinthians 1.18 verse. It's God's concept of the cross. The word translated preaching, that's our focus. What is the preaching of the cross that is the power of God? Now, 1 Corinthians 1 is a chapter that speaks about persuasion, And the Greek word translated preaching is the key. God is in the business of persuading people. God persuades people to come to him. And because God does that, and because we are God's own, we come into that same business of persuading. And that's what we see God persuading when we look at Romans 10, 21, where it says, but to Israel... He saith, all day long, I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. We see, in this verse, we see God as the persuader. He's in action here when we read these words, all day long, have, have I stretched forth my hands. That's God the persuader. And then we jump right into this work ourselves as persuaders. And where it says in 2 Corinthians 5.11, 2 Corinthians 5.11 says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. 2 Corinthians 5.20, 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Now therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. These are verses about us as persuaders. But the question is, how does God persuade men? And the subject of how to persuade men 
was actually shaped by a Greek philosopher who lived over 400 years before the New Testament was written, and that philosopher was Aristotle. And Aristotle used three words to describe three ways to persuade people. And God uses all three ways to persuade people. But there is one way, there's one method that God sets as his main or his primary way to persuade people. The first word that Aristotle used in the Greek language was the word ethos, ethos. And that describes the first way to persuade a person. We get our word ethical from ethos. And it means to persuade a person based on personal credentials or character or image. We use an ethos method of persuasion when we persuade a lost person by saying something like, I know this Bible really well. So you can trust me to guide you in this book because I've studied the Bible for a long time. I'm reliable. That's ethos where it puts the light on the teacher. And there's nothing wrong with that. Many people come to the Lord Jesus Christ by becoming followers of Billy Graham. That's ethos. The Lord used the ethos method of persuasion in the Old Testament in particular, where we read, thus saith the Lord. Now, who's going to argue with that statement? (laughs) Thus saith the Lord. That puts the focus on the Lord. That's the ethos method. The ethos method of persuasion works by impressing a person with the person, the character, or the image of the persuader. That's the two words, ethos and impressed. Then Aristotle used the second Greek word, which is the word pathos. Pathos to describe the second way of persuading a person. We get our word passion from pathos, and it means emotional. It's an emotional appeal. We use the pathos method of persuasion when we seek to persuade a lost person by saying something like, as soon as you die, as soon as you die, you're going to be ushered into your own judgment, and then you'll be thrown into a miserable hell forever. that, That brings about emotions. We use the pathos method of persuasion when we show a person the movie, The Passion, The Passion of Christ. And that brings out an emotional response. There's nothing wrong with that. Many people have come to the Lord Jesus Christ from an emotional appeal. At times, the Lord used this pathos method of persuasion when, for example, the Lord Jesus Christ said in Luke 13, Luke 13, 1 through 3, 1 through 3, he says, it says, there were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, suppose you that these Galileans were sinners above all Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you nay, but except ye repent, you shall all likewise perish. That's a pathos method of persuasion. The pathos method of persuasion works when a person is afraid or he's moved emotionally. But the third way of persuasion is the main method. It's the method that God primarily uses to persuade people. And it's described as Aristotle used the third word by the word logos. You see, we get our word logical from logos. Logos means to persuade a person with logic or reason. 
We use the logos method of persuasion when we seek to persuade a lost person by saying something like, God as the creator owns us, and here's the evidence that God is the creator, which is what we do at the Creation Museum. And then we see the Lord using this logos method of persuasion, which is a method of stop and think. When he appealed to logic and reason, as he did in Isaiah 118, when he said, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson. See, those are all methods of stop and think. Let's reason together. Come now and let us reason together. That's the Logos method of persuasion by logic and reason. And the Logos method of persuasion works when a person stops and thinks deeply. See, last, 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 last Friday, last Friday at family night, I, 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 I had the privilege of encountering three-year-old Kaylee Cable. <laughs> and she started to walk up the stairs And so it was important to persuade Kaylee not to go up the stairs. So if I would have made myself look big, which I can do, and and shook my, and didn't say a word, just shook my head, no, that would be the ethos method of persuasion where Kaylee would have thought, he's so big, I should not go up those stairs. And I would not have had to say a word to get Kaylee to respect me. I would have impressed her. See, by the ethos method, Kaylee would be impressed of the seeming big authority. But on the other hand, I, I, would, I would have gotten, if I would have gotten above her on the stairs and made a scary face, which I'm also good at, <laughs> that would be the pathos method of persuasion, where Kaylee would have been afraid. And I also would not have had to say a word for Kaylee to be afraid of me. But on the other hand, if I would would have sat down on the stair next to her and said, Kaylee, let's talk. (laughs) You are too little to use these stairs because these stairs were not made for little people. They were made for big people, adults. And if I would have explained all that with words, that's the logos method of persuasion. Unlike the other two ways of persuasion, I would have had to use words or logos to get Katie to stop and think and reason and use logic to understand to come down. See, by the logos method, Katie would have to think. And that's the method that God primarily uses to persuade people. The Logos method of persuasion. It's the sila of stop and think in the scriptures. You have to use words for the Logos method of persuasion. And that's the reason why the word Logos in the Bible is translated word. See, that's the method that God uses, primarily uses to persuade people. And how appropriate today that we hear from Wycliffe Bible translator Joanne Galt translating the words of God into this language. The Logos method works with words. The Lord Jesus Christ primarily used the Logos method. That's why in John chapter 1, the Lord Jesus Christ is called the Logos or the Word, as it says in John chapter 1, verse 1, John 1, 1, 
in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. See, John, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Logos Word, and the Logos Word was with God. The Logos Word was God. And then John 1, 14 says, and the Logos Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So from John chapter 1, we see the Lord Jesus Christ as the Logos will persuade people by logic and reason with words. And people will have to stop and think and understand and be persuaded by reason. So from John chapter 1, we learn that the Lord Jesus Christ is not called the ethos, who will persuade by telling everyone that he is God. Because the Lord Jesus Christ did not come to persuade people by impressing on them that he was God. As a matter of fact, he suppressed the ethos method of impressing people that he was God when he said in Matthew chapter 16, verses 16 through 21, Matthew 16, 16 through 21, Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, or thou art the Christ, God, the son and, and, and Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven revealed that he was God, in other words. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I give unto thee the keys of, of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then the next verse says, Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that Jesus was the Christ. And from that time forth, Jesus began Jesus to show unto his disciples how he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer Many things of the elders and chief priests, scribes, would be killed and be raised again on the third day. See, he suppressed them from telling everyone he was God. He suppressed the ethos method. From John chapter 1, we learn that the Lord Jesus Christ is not called the ethos, and we also learn that the Lord Jesus Christ is not called the pathos. He's not called the path who would persuade people by stirring up their emotions. Because the Lord Jesus Christ did not come to persuade people by emotions, For example, when the emotional subject was brought up of his mother's body, that he changed the focus in Luke chapter 11, verses 27 through 28. Luke chapter 11, verse 27 to 28. And it came to pass as he spake these things, a certain woman of the company lifted up her voice and said unto him, blessed is the womb that bare thee and the naps or the breasts which gave thee suck. But he said, yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. By calling himself the Logos, he wanted people to stop and think and reason and understand. So Logos means word, which implies deep thinking and careful consideration. And what we were just hearing about was how these people take the Bible Read it, say, don't bother me, I'm not going to eat, because he's going to deeply think and consider these things. The word logos is in our verse in 1 Corinthians 1.18. It has been translated preaching in 1 Corinthians 1.18. But to keep the essential meaning, 
We're going to substitute the word, uh, the, the word instead of preaching for logos in 1 Corinthians 1.18. So the verse can be read like this. For the logos or word of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it's the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it's the power of God. That's what we want to keep in mind during communion. 1 Corinthians 1.18. The word of the cross. The logos of the cross. It leads us to stop and think on the issues of the cross, to stop and think on the points of the cross. What is the logos or the word of the cross? What are the issues that we are to stop and think about before communion? What is the word of the cross? What is the logos of the cross? When we look at the cross, there are so many issues for us to stop and think about. But now, before we enter into communion now, just one thought, just one issue. And, and, and in the future, we'll stop and think about different issues or different points of the cross that it brings up. But now, just one point, just one issue. And that is this, how the cross pulverizes the idea that man is inherently good inside. The Bible says in, in Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. The way of thinking that we are inherently good inside seems right. It seems right. But that way of thinking leads to a hell of eternal death. Because the idea that man is essentially good, it seems correct, but that's the idea that leads to a hell of eternal death. When we look at the cross, we stop and we carefully think how any idea that we are good inside is pulverized by what we see. Why? Because we think if it took that horrible a death to atone for my sins, I must be really bad inside. And if I am that bad inside, I desperately need the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. I desperately need his death as the payment for my sins. That leads to life. That thought leads to life. So today, as we look forward to participating in communion, we want to consider the special importance of what we're about to do. Because it's been called communion. I mean, I just called it communion. Some people call it the Lord. Sometimes it's called the Lord's Supper. Sometimes it's called the Lord's Table. But from the name that is most commonly used in Scripture to describe what we're about to do, it's the breaking of bread. Why is it called the breaking of bread? Because of the scripture we just read in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 24, for I received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. He took bread 
and he broke it and said, take eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. He broke bread. That's why we call it the breaking of bread. Before considering what the breaking of bread is, we want to consider what the breaking of bread is not. There are two misconceptions or deceptions about the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread is in no way a means to obtain salvation because the breaking of bread is restricted to believers only. Second, the breaking of bread is not transubstantiation where the bread and the juice or the wine become the actual literal body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nowhere in scripture are we taught that the breaking of bread is a continuation of the sacrifice that the Lord Jesus Christ made once and for all on the cross. And to believe in any of these two misconceptions is to be robbed of the meaning and of the purpose and of the blessing from the breaking of bread. Now, an important question to ask or to, or to get an answer to is why? Why do we do this? Why do we break bread? Why do we have a communion service? And the answer to this question is seen by two words that the Lord Jesus Christ used twice in, in verses 24 and 25, and they tell us why, why we do this. It says, these two words are, this do, this do. See, those are the two words that the Lord said, this do, and they show us clearly that to break bread is a matter of obedience. It's a matter of obeying the Lord. For believers, it's an act of obedience. It's not a matter of, it seems like a good idea. It's not a matter of, I like it, so I do it. It's a matter of, I must, because I'm commanded to by the Lord Jesus himself. That's why the breaking of bread is called an ordinance. And there are two ordinances that the Lord Jesus gave us. First, baptism, which we're all gonna do next week, praise the Lord, and breaking of bread or communion this week. Baptism and communion are matters of obedience because the Lord commanded us to. And here at the chapel, we have a breaking of the bread available every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. And I know there are many obstacles to the 9.30 communion service, but to come, to come to that service, to break through all those obstacles is a statement of a desire or a willingness to obey the Lord. And to not come is a statement of it's too much, it's a burdensome duty. Now, the next question is, what is the greatest motivation for coming to the breaking of the bread? Why should I sacrifice my time? Why should I sacrifice what I'm doing at 9.30 on Sunday? And we have this service now once a week. But why come at 9.30 to the breaking of bread? What's the greatest motivation for me to come? The greatest motivation for coming weekly to the breaking of bread is to remember what the Lord Jesus said when he instituted the breaking of the bread. In Luke 22:15, it says, and he said unto them, with desire, I have desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. The Passover became the breaking of the bread. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God, 
Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org to sign up for his daily devotional verse. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestoration.org. Or you can write Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711-330, P.O. Box 711-330, Santee, California. That's S-A-N-T-E-E, Santee, California, 92071. Or you can email Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. Sunday Night Church is back. Join Friendship with God Bible teacher Tom Cantor at the new Friendship with God Fellowship every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California. Join us early each Sunday at 4.30 p.m. for food and fellowship with Sunday evening services to follow at 5.30 p.m. Watch Tom Cantor and the service on YouTube Live, located on the Friendship with God website. Enjoy encouraging teaching from our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, in a relaxed and family-friendly atmosphere. Sunday Night Church is back, so join us at the Friendship with God Fellowship every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum at 10946 Woodside Avenue North in Santee, California. For more information, call us at 800-247-3051, 1-800-247-3051, or visit friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org for the Friendship with God Fellowship.